Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not your last. Welcome to Dead Headspace, part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, YouTube, and all other major platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brian LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And returning guest host, Cassie Daly. Say hi, Cassie. And today we're talking with the author of The Old One in the Sea and his latest collection, Whistling Past the Graveyard, Lex H. Jones. Say hello, sir. Hi, everybody. Now, for those that haven't gone back to the original six episodes that were launched May 27th of 2020, season one, Lex was our first guest. I thought long and hard about it. Lex is... uh, You'll learn real quick why I picked them first. That was recorded in March 14th of 2020. So that was uh, that was over a year ago, man. Before we now we ask a baseline question, what got you into horror? We'll do that in one second. But you, this is a little bit different. You're my you were my first guest ever. So I just want to yeah. ask. Since then, and I've acquired Brennan and Cassie whenever she wants to come on, along with uh, Erica uh, as well. So. There's been a few things that's changed on my end. What about you, man? What what's what's been going on since the pandemic? Uh, not a great deal in terms of life changes because obviously we're all sort of just stuck where we are at the moment. But um, I've co-written and had produced a um, comic book strip since then, uh, which I worked on with uh, my friend Liam, who did the artwork for the old one on the sea. Uh, and I've been working on a film script with a, a different friend of mine, uh, which we're going to be sending off to a few places. Um, both of which are projects which I never would have imagined getting asked to get involved with. But but in, in terms of day-to-day life, it's just kind of the same, to be honest, except just working at home all the time, not, not really going anywhere or doing much. Oh, nice. Very good. Um, let's jump into it, man. What got you into horror? Um. I would say probably it's always been that thing that I've liked. You know, like when you're a kid and there's various stuff that kind of comes and goes depending on what's pushed on you. So, you know, it might be that um, the, one particular franchise is really popular at that time. So it might for, for our sort of age, it might have been the Transformers or then He-Man or Thundercats or whatever. But you, you've always got something which you are always interested in regardless of what's being pushed on you so for some kids it might be sport you know baseball football whatever 
for me, it was always horror stuff. So like ghosts and zombies, vampires and graveyards, woodlands, castles. That was always my thing. No, no matter what else was going on in popular franchises, no matter what else was in the zeitgeist at that time, I was always into classic horror stuff and any, anything that incorporated it. Very good. Anyone want to take over? Um, I just, so I wanted to say, cause I was reading the collection and then I liked the little like beginning part where it had like the story about you loving horror and like how you found that, like the little box thing that you played with your little toys in and like yes. the story with your grandfather and stuff. So I just, I really love that it was such a part of your upbringing. Cause it, it shows like there are people who just come to horror later in life and they aren't as influenced and you can kind of tell like there's a little bit more of a different lean to their writing. Whereas yours is just like heavily like sad, emotional, some of it. And then some of it's just creepy, like dark, misty, you know, like, yeah. I love that. I just picture you as a little child, like what kind of things can I say to scare my grandpa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it was true. He, he, my granddad uh, kind of nurtured my love of um, horror. He, he loved it himself. He was a massive horror movie fan. Um, in fact, his favorite movie of all time was, was the original Predator film because he mm -hmm. loved science fiction, he loved action, and he loved horror. And that film was like the perfect marriage of those three things. So that was his like absolute favorite film. But he loved all the classic sort of British hammer horror films as well. Uh, and when he discovered my joy of these things, he used to tell me ghost stories. Uh, the first one he told me was uh, um, Whistle and I'll Come to You, which is a story by a ghost story writer mr james and i used to ask him to tell me that story over and over again and he he, he just had this way of sort of like orating the story which was which was fantastic so that's that's like the first proper ghost story i was ever introduced to and that that came through him you know what's neat is the only other person that comes to mind that talks about mr james is ramsey campbell and uh ramsey and you are very similar you guys uh maybe not so in style it's not what i mean exactly but personality sure so I, I love it because uh mr james is someone that was there before lovecraft the guy that formed cosmic horror and yeah no one really talks about him or you know algernon blacks blackwood um it is there was it just that one story by james or was there more that it I'm not sure. With regards specifically to my grandfather, that is the one that I always remember him telling me. But his his stories were always a combination of either something he'd read somewhere which he would adapt to be suitable or sort of suitable for a child or something he'd just made up or, or whatever. So it, it may well be that there were other ones of M.R. James in there, but that is the one I specifically remember him telling me. But then I, I got a book of ghost stories that were like, sort of adapted for children and what i've discovered as an adult when i've read all of mr james's stories there are actually a few of those were his stories which had been sort of tailored for that specific age so that that so i was actually introduced to other ones of his earlier than i thought i was you can you're in, like I, I know you pretty well at this point and I, after reading a few of your books i can see your influences are they're they're pretty prevalent such as like charles dickens i know he's your favorite yeah. and uh i i kind of feel like with that mindset with me knowing that's your influence going in reading this collection which you know what let's just jump in it early um it feels like kind of a modern day charles dickens story okay uh, you, you got that i, I 
can't really think of any other author with that uh, type of style. But the way the reason why is it's just you're you wrench it up a few notches in the horror section, but your style and tone and pacing reminds me of Dickens. Um, but before we dive into the collection, actually, why don't why don't we talk about what got you into Dickens? Because I, I don't think I know that. I'm curious about that. Um, I. It, it was the, my favourite book of his is uh, Christmas Carol, which is actually my favourite book. I love general. a Christmas Carol. I'm sorry, it's, I didn't mean. I just no, got no, so no, excited. No, I love that, Christmas. <laughs> that book is so good. I read it every year. So yeah, that, that so book. Uh, that book was what made it put modern Christmas on. It it turns what we know as Christmas yes. in the world. Like this is why we celebrate and so forth. It's, yeah, it, that, that was that was huge. Yes, yeah, Christmas had kind of been pushed to the background in, in Western countries, particularly in Britain, by the Puritans and one thing or another. Um, but then a lot of other European countries, particularly Germany, had this kind of love of Christmas and celebrating it. And then Charles Dickens wrote The Christmas Carol, which was basically what was at the time a fictional version of what if England celebrated Christmas like this? So he just wrote this like alternate reality where Christmas was a big deal there. And that kind of reinvigorated it. And that, along with Queen Victoria's husband, who was German himself, and he brought a bunch of traditions over. And that just kind of reignited the whole of Christmas, like you said. So we, as much as that is, a quite rightly, a beloved Christmas story, it is actually responsible for what we think of as, as modern Christmas. How cool is that? Like I didn't know yeah. that either. That's yeah, yeah. me neither. F- fiction... It's it's above his time, like like yeah. that. And I brought up Jules Verne in the past, um, you know, fr- French writer that's talking about guys landing on the moon and traveling deep sea exploration. And then you got guys like Poe who writes this uh, prose poetry towards the end of his life called Eureka, where it talks about uh, the cosmos and it, it goes against all at that time. Uh, modern um, thoughts on on space and how all the astrophysics works. And sure. one more example is Mark Twain. He had this uh, letters from Earth and letters to Earth about uh, Saint um, was it Gabriel? I think it was. No, sorry, Saint Michael. I think it's one of them. The one that the, that protects the gate is that Michael or Peter? Oh, Peter is on the gate. All right. Classic. You know what? Yeah. It's an angel in heaven talking to <laughs> Lucifer, and Lucifer feels bad for humans, the entire race, and he's trying to basically he's a start like a little upset child talking about how bad yeah. God is, and and uh, that was really risque. Oh yeah, to, bet, to yeah. publish back then his daughter. I, I I'm pretty sure that was a posthumous uh, publication, and his daughter was little hesitant at the time that it might make a stain on his father but my whole point is is isn't that cool that fiction fiction art changes the world yeah i mean even in in ways that you don't have a specific example like uh, quite recently it was uh, william shatner's 90th birthday and uh, nasa tweeted him to say happy birthday and everything and it makes you think how many people that work for nasa grew up watching star trek and were inspired to become astronauts and such through watching Star Trek, and now they actually are. And then they're tweeting back at William Shatner and say, and you think, this stuff matters more than you think. Just You're just thinking, I'm telling a story that I want to tell, I'm putting it out there, and I hope people like it. But you don't know what that's going to lead to. Once it's out there in the world, you, you don't know what that's causing, and I, I think that's really good. 
You just gave me chills. That's so fucking cool. <laughs> Seriously, I never thought of that. Sci-fi and people that actually go to space or, or yeah. study astrophysics or whatever. I, I some reason, didn't put two and two together. That's interesting. Bernie yeah, Cassie, yeah. jump in. I actually want to jump back, uh, you know, before we go to Whistling Past the Graveyard, you mentioned that, um, you know, we were talking about your grandfather telling you that story and you constantly asking for it. We recently had a really interesting conversation with um, uh, an indigenous Canadian writer named Wabgishi Rice about uh, kind of that tradition of oral storytelling and how it's getting lost. So I'm kind of curious, would you, would your grandfather tell the story the same every time or would he add different things? And like, what was your preference? He he would alter it slightly. Um, and I think whether that was because he kind of saw which bits I responded to well and, and adapted it to that or just because you can't remember it specifically each time, I'm not sure. But, but, but like, there's another example of him doing this, which is a, a story that uh, I, I always remember from when I was a child, is that we uh, we used to go on holiday with my grandfather and my grandma. And uh, one one year we were in the villa in Spain or, or Portugal, somewhere, I can't remember specifically which one. And there was these, these like, comic books, um, and they were Disney comic books, like classic characters, Mickey and Donald and everything. But they were in Spanish. So I asked my granddad to read them to me, who pretended that he could read Spanish. <laughs> so he then just made up some story but then what does a four-year-old do is you immediately want to hear it again. So then, But he had no idea what he'd just made up off the cuff. <laughs> so then the version of the story the second time was nothing like what he'd said the first time. And so I, I always remember that as well, because his ability to just create stuff off the cuff like that was, was fantastic. That's brilliant. Uh, you know, how do you feel like that translated directly or indirectly to you wanting to become a creator? Um, I think very much so, yeah, because right from an early age, I've always just enjoyed just stories. You know, I, I love telling stories even before I had the medium to do it through language. So, like, for me, the earliest medium of telling stories was was, was action figures. You know, you'd, you'd get toys of different characters from different things, and you'd make up a story to to tell with these characters. And they'd be, you know, mine would be quite elaborate and they'd be like a whole season arc of things that were going on that you would return to. And, you know, I wasn't just bashing them together like some kids do. There was whole, you know, plots and subplots and, and things that were going on. And that was kind of like, I suppose, the first method I had of telling stories before I was adept enough with writing that I could then use words. But it's still, it's the same thing. You are, you know, utilizing characters to 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 tell a story do you think you know looking at i'm trying to think how to phrase this so i mean it sounds like your introduction to storytelling just came from so many different angles um and you know I've, i've certainly heard some people express the view that uh when you read, you know, you, you got to do it with a physical book. And there's just, you know, that that's such a hard and, you know, forgive me, but silly limit uh, sure. to storytelling. So, I mean, do you think that because it wasn't your experience, wasn't just here's a book, enjoy the story because you've got it in, in all facets, that that also impacted, you know, what you ended up doing for a career? Yeah, I mean, I love stories in general i don't care whether it's a book or a tv show or a film or even like video games have amazing narratives to them now 
I think if you've got a good story that's well told with good actors or, or even like radio players, I miss that out. You know, anything, any medium can convey a story in a good way. I, I don't like this snobbishness that it's got to be like a physical book and otherwise it's not valid. I just think that's, you know, and it's like, I, I remember, I'm a, I'm a big fan of comic book movies. You know, I, I, I don't agree with literary snobbishness. I think a valid a graphic novel is as valid a piece of literature as, as an actual novel. But there is a lot of snobbishness among uh, filmmakers with regards to a lot of films that come out. And they'll be saying things like, oh, it's ridiculous, these superhero films with people who've got these powers and this and that. And I'm like, have you read Shakespeare? Because it's pretty (laughs) much the same shit, except it's wizards and goblins and dead kings instead of mutants and aliens and wizards. But it's the same sort of thing. And yet, just because that was written a certain amount of time ago it's now got this stamp of literary approval on it. And it's, it's, it's just such, I hate that kind of snobbery. I, I really do. Yeah. I, and, you know, I don't think I, I've talked about this before and I'll talk about it again, but I don't think you can discount like, you know, for example, the Marvel movies Sure. Uh, up to this point, you know, they've spanned uh, 13 years and 20 some odd movies and uh, of, you know, a large arc with small arcs, in between and that's you know there's an art of storytelling to that and yeah you definitely see you know some of the uh filmmakers who kind of regard their their selves as you know cinema and art and all that uh turn their nose down at it but yeah i I don't think you can you know i remember walking out of endgame a couple years ago and thinking you know that movie had plot holes in it and i don't care because i you know enjoyed the journey of these characters and I'm satisfied with, you know, where they end up makes sense to what the creators have been establishing for the last 13 years. And to me, that's great storytelling. Yes, I agree. I agree. I think it's, it's the fact that it's, you know, gone for so long. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of hard work goes into that. And as for saying filmmakers who consider that, Oh, my work is cinema or whatever. I think anyone who decides that for themselves is a prick. That's up to the audience to decide. You don't get to decide that. Sit down and shut up. That's not, you know, you can't just decide that, oh, mine is the real version of this. It's such an arrogant attitude to take. Plus, in in game, those last two men, oh, my God. I don't know how you all feel about that, but I was floored in the theaters. I felt like a little kid just eating that shit up. It's so satisfying to get to that after this. It's like reading the final novel in a series, isn't it? Yeah. You've, you've been reading them for years, and then this is the one that, you know, it's all been building to. And like you said, there's various plot points that get wrapped up and, and things leading to this. And that's, that's storytelling. That's what a story is. It doesn't matter that it's not a book. It's still the same thing that you're getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Cassie, you got anything on this subject? <clears throat> Sorry, I was drinking my coffee. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. Just along that same vein of uh, snobbishness and stuff like that, I think it's important too to realize that even if you hate something as a creator or even just as somebody who consumes things, that doesn't mean that other people won't like it. So, like, even oh, if yeah. there are things that come out that I don't like personally, but I don't go to Twitter, you know, for example, posting about how shit it is because there are people who do enjoy it and who do get inspired by it. Like, there are people who've been inspired by the shittiest, terrible, most B-movie like things oh, to yeah. make things that are better. And it, that's an important step, I think, or that's an important thing that a lot of people who are like you, kind of elitists about things 
forget, like just because it doesn't speak to you and you don't see value in something doesn't mean that there's no value in it for somebody else. It's a very sort of narcissistic attitude, isn't it? That this thing that's yes. come out doesn't cater to my personal taste, therefore it's crap. It's, it's, yeah, there's no positivity to that attitude at all. No, I hate it. I hate it. And so and I, I, I know that there's obviously like there are times where you can share opinions that things are not good. And like, for example, when the Cruella announcement came out, I was like, look, I'm not into a puppy killer. guys. I don't want to watch this movie. <laughs> this is not for me. There were a bunch of my friends who were like, oh, yeah, girl, go, go. And I was like, OK, enjoy it then. Like, that's not for me. I'm not going to watch it. You guys want to watch this. I hope you enjoy it. Like, there's no, it, it's not hurting me for you to like something that I don't like. It doesn't take away from me. Sure. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I've never been into this kind of, uh, well, I mean, it's happened with, with video games, with horror films, with rap music, with Marilyn Manson, where people are like, oh, I don't like this particular genre of thing. Therefore, it should get taken away for everybody. I, I don't get that. I don't get where that comes from. Why Why do these people think everything should be catered to them? It's just, I don't like rap music. I find it offensive. Fair enough. Don't listen to any then. That's just, just let it be enjoyed by the people who do, you know? Probably yeah. came from America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Sorry, man. <laughs> you no, know, we've, just... we've got a fair share of... of in, in the 70s and 80s, and to a lesser extent the 90s, we had this woman quite famously in the UK who was called Mary Whitehouse. And she was infamous for complaining about everything. Every TV show, it's it's got too much sex in it. It's got too much violence. It's got too much swearing. She, everything, you name it, films, radio shows, TV, she, she complained about it. And she became such a infamous part of pop culture that even now, like 30 years after this woman died, if people <laughs> complain about something actively, like in pop culture, people in Britain refer to these people as the Mary Whitehouse Brigade. It's a term that you see because she has become synonymous with that complaining about something you don't like as if you're somehow the moral arbiter of the whole country. Instead of just thinking, I don't like this, switch it over. You know, it, it, it's people like that. are. Just, she is synonymous with, with those type of people over here. What a legacy. You know, it, it, it reminds me of the whole thing that's been going on recently with uh, that Little Nas X video, um, yeah. Yeah. Montero. And the outcry about how all the, you know, from parents mostly about how their kids fell in love with Old Town Road and, you know, that he has a duty as, you know, somebody <laughs> who created a song that kids love. And now, you know, they're exposed to this inappropriate. And he came firing right back and said, watch what your kids are fucking doing. You yeah. know, yeah. and, and, and yeah. that attitude has been, you know, I remember Marilyn Manson getting thrown under the bus for the Columbine shootings. Now, obviously, yeah. he's got other problems now, but, oh, yeah. you know, that was fuck absurd him. at the time. Um, <laughs> Marilyn you know, Manson. For, for the, for the system to have, you know, failed these kids in that specific instance and for nowadays for these parents to shove their kids on a device for seven hours at a time and then get pissed off when they have access to something that they shouldn't have access to. It's like that's that's on you. You know, Yeah, I agree. Fully agree. Yeah, it's just There's a lot of thing, isn't it? Yeah. And like personal responsibility, I think, plays a huge part to where there are people that feel like the, the world should cater to them versus... Oh, yeah that they should just change. And I, there, there, I, I want to be clear here that there are definitely situations that I think the world should change to cater to people more um, in certain, you know, social situations and stuff like that. But like in regards of like, Oh, I don't like that movie movies like this, like the super, I don't like superhero movies. So shouldn't, why do they keep getting made? And I'm like, shut up, dude, let me watch Spider-Man. Like, this is yeah. what I want to watch. <laughs> like there are so many people who like this and like, 
I don't know. I just, it makes me, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, why are you being so negative? Stop it. <laughs> like, it makes me so frustrated on Twitter, especially. I just, I close it. I mute people. I'm like, I don't care if you don't want to watch the show or like read this I book, agree. like go away. <laughs> the, these things go in waves as well. And people seem to forget that. Like we've had like a decade or so now where superhero movies have been a big thing and they've been treated seriously and they've had good money and good actors and all this, but that's relatively new. There was decades. I mean, I grew up reading comic books as much as I read horror stuff. And there was decades where you couldn't find a good superhero movie for for trying. You know, I remember wanting a figure of Lex Luthor, a toy, as a child. And because he was one of my favorite characters in the comic books and just couldn't find one because there were no films of Superman out. There were no cartoons out at that time. So they didn't make action figures of it. You know, it's not like now where you can walk in any shop and there's superhero stuff everywhere. It wasn't a thing then, because at that time it was all like big action movies with big muscly guys with guns. And then in <laughs> and then in the nineties we got lots of big like big sci-fi movies and summer blockbuster things, and then we went into lots of car chase movies and that you know, things have waves. Like twenty years from now, it'll be something else that's dominating the airwaves. It's just that the people complaining about superhero movies, it's just that right now, the current wave in cinema doesn't cater to you personally. But that's fine. The next one might do. So just let people enjoy this one and then you'll you'll have yours whenever it comes up yes and montero is a bop too also for the record so (laughs) (laughs) i don't care for the song personally but i completely support his uh uh ability that's not the right word but i support him making that video and i really support him firing back at People, you know, telling him that, hey, guess what? You're Raffi now. You're a fucking children's performer because we said so. Yeah, I, I think people don't understand that ability. It's in a, I think it's an American phrase, but it's one that I really, really like, which is, you know, where people say, I, I don't agree with what you say, but I respect your right to say it or I will defend your right to say it. It's the same. People seem to have lost that on Twitter, that idea that I don't personally like this piece of art, but I fully defend this guy's right to promote it and and produce it just because i don't like it doesn't mean it should go away and people just don't seem to understand that at all mm. hey by the way my outburst uh i'm a short-tempered irishman so i just gotta clear the air uh, my outburst with marilyn manson i used to be a <laughs> fan of him but after i heard about uh was it evan rachel wood evan came rachel out Lodge, yeah came yes. out about his yeah. abuse um the next time I heard him on the radio, I had a phys- this has never happened. I had a physical reaction because I was just disgusted. I, I used to love listening to his, yeah. his songs, but I, look, I'm not like that with every artist. There's some flaws that are okay, but this one's definitely not. And I just sure. and then I found out like 25 years ago, Trent Reznor wrote him off very publicly, and I'm like, I fucking love Reznor. <laughs> I already did, but... I think everyone has to draw their own lines with stuff like that, you know? Well, if you're abusing women, that. that's, my, that's my line. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, I mean, there's there's you're going to struggle to find any artist, musician, actor, whatever, who hasn't done or said something at some point that you think, yeah. oh, that's unfortunate. But it's up to you as an individual to decide whether or not, like like with you saying, okay, I can't listen to this guy anymore because the association between him and what he's done is so great that I can't listen to him. That's fine. But similarly, there will be other people who who choose to still listen to him, and that's fine as well. It's, it's, you've got to draw your own boundaries with that, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, as long as you're not forcing me to listen to it, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Do yeah. your own thing. I think, um, so just really quickly going back to, to the accountability thing or how you were talking about like with 
people like the parents who are saying like, oh, you owed our children this because you were doing this. I think something personally that I've experienced too with this is a lot of my personal, um, you can't see my air quotes, but I'm using air quotes for this brand (laughs) are um, like rainbows and bright, like shining, happy, cheerful things. Um, So when I first started drawing my boudoir art, I got messages on Instagram and Twitter from people who were telling me that they were unfollowing me because they did not like seeing undressed women. Um, and I was like, that's fair. Like totally your prerogative. Like I'm not hurt by this. I unfollowed you back friend. Like <laughs> we're just moving on. I'm still bringing on the titties. Like this is what's going <laughs> to happen. This is who I am and what I want to do. So like I, and I, I, so when I saw him posting those tweets and stuff, I was like, yes, like, thank you. Cause it's not my job to produce stuff that makes Correct. you happy. It's my job to make stuff that makes me happy. And boobies make me happy. And I like drawing them, so I'm gonna. And if you don't want to see it, unfollow, mute. That's fine. That's fine. It's your choice. Like you're saying, it's your prerogative. Yeah. It's your decision to make for yourself. But she shouldn't be, they shouldn't be telling you that you shouldn't be making it. No, <laughs> holding people to these standards and, and then these these ideas of people on social media, who you think they are just based on like selfies or like a couple. I'm going yeah. on a different rant because I have a lot of feelings on no, this. No, no, I, I fully it's agree It's so with important you. to keep in mind. Like people are fully realized, full rounded people outside of things and outside oh, yeah. of what they create and do. And it's just I think people lose sight of that when they're judging the actual thing that's being made. Absolutely. I agree fully. And I just got to say. Boobies make me happy too, so. <laughs> I, actually, uh, I commissioned Cassie for one of those pictures for a friend of mine and she loved it. Yeah, oh, I yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah. Who was it? Do, do we know her? I can't say, I can't say who it was. I, yeah, we, it was a private gift. But it it was, was a great gift though and yeah. it was fun. Oh, my, my apologies. Um, yeah, that's inappropriate. That is inappropriate. <laughs> well, I'm my kind of out. <laughs> so... <laughs> Sorry, just read something f- funny. Brian said, uh, "You guys want to dive into whistling past the graveyard?" Sure, yeah. Who wants to go first? I have many thoughts. I'm sure we all do. Okay, so I'll start first with um, a little bit more just from your introductions because I remember you talking about how you really loved um, this dark atmosphere and like these like moors and things like that, and you were like, "I don't really write stuff like this." And then I fucking read your stories, and I'm like, "Bullshit! You don't write stuff like this. Like, <laughs> these are so atmospheric and like." foggy and creepy and like silent hill-esque you know so like i want to know why you think you don't write like that i can't remember specifically what i said but i think that like (laughs) i i don't see my own work as particularly dark i suppose but i think it's because horror is such like a such a sliding scale of like what's classed as horror you know and i think because i've read some of the stuff that's really dark and really extreme and stuff I, and I'm nowhere near that. That's just not my wheelhouse. So I don't think of my stuff as being that dark and and uh, potent in that way, I suppose. I think mine's a lot more sort of a... I don't know whether to use the word comfortable is right, but it's more like a sort of old school sort of horror that I do rather than, you know, there's, there's nothing in mine that's going to make you feel like you want to throw up. There's nothing that's going to, you know, make you turn away from the camera if it was on screen. There's There's nothing like that. So I think that's probably why I sort of, don't think of my work as being particularly dark but it, it, as you say i suppose it is dark in a in a different way it is definitely i think uh foreboding is like a word that i would use for a lot of the yeah. stories yeah because i think for me that is where the horror lives really is in the kind of you know something's coming you know something's going to happen you know something's not right because as soon as it is you know like if you're walking through a woods and you're sure there's a werewolf after you 
the scary part of that is when you can hear it, is when you can hear the leaves crunching, you can hear the howl, you can hear the, the breathing getting closer. Once it's there, it's just a physical thing to be dealt with. You know, once it jumps out in front of you, it's just something else to shoot or to hit or to run away from or, or whatever. It's become a physical thing. And at that point, it's no more frightening than if it was a mugger or a dog. But it's, it's that leading up to that moment where it becomes manifest. That's the scary part, I think. So I tend to put more of that in the story rather than the full-on, right, here's your monster, you know? Yeah. Now, from from the Moors to everything you just said, you know, it just it, it made me think of one story in the collection, and uh, that's the Hangman's Sojourn. Yeah. Um, and what I loved about that is, like Cassie said, it was so atmospheric. Um, I, I won't spoil for listeners, but I, I kind of liked the beast, if you will, um, yeah. the monster. But I absolutely loved the interplay uh, between Howe and McLean. Um, and I have to imagine that was a lot of fun to write, the way they kind of played off each other. And I noticed that you really injected kind of humor like that into a lot of your stories. Is that just kind of... Is that and forgive me? This is the only thing I've read by you. I have not gotten around to the old one in the sea, although I think you know Patrick tells me that my kids would love it. Um, <laughs> You'll love and, it, and I'll love it. Um, but is that something that's important to you? Injecting a little humor and fun into you know creepy at creepy atmospheres? Yes, because um, although he's got the Uluto, <laughs> <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> yeah, Laura. Let, real quick plug. Uh, audio listeners, I just held up a Cthulhu stuff, Cthulhu and Lovecraft. Uh, it's by Laura Morrow. Um, yeah, she made those for yeah, me. She's That's fantastic. Great. Also, a great writer. She is fantastic and a lovely person, as, as most, perhaps most importantly. <laughs> and she also pulls off a mohawk. I'm like, she most does. People. Yeah, she can do any hairstyle. Whatever she decides to do, it just looks brilliant on Laura. It's really annoying. <laughs> I have the opposite problem. Oh, mine's going. I'm going to shave it off like Patrick soon, I think. Mine hey! Is, <laughs> I have hair. You just can't see it. It's just on your face. <laughs> so, what was it? What did he ask? Oh, yeah. So, humor. I think that's... that. I don't know if this is a British thing, but specifically in my experience as a British person with other British people, there is no situation where some humor won't be injected into it. I've never been to a funeral where someone hasn't made a joke at some point. Because that's, I, you know, I, I've, I've done, you know, extreme sports things. I've done, like, ghost walk things. I've, I've done, you know, you name it, scary type of events. There'll be someone there making it into an excuse to have a laugh. Because that's just a British thing. And I think that that's real life, though. I think whenever you see situations in films where people aren't making a joke or they're not trying to inject a bit of humour or they're not... I just think that seems really unrealistic because that's what we do, as, as particularly as British people, but I, I'm assuming it's the same the world over pretty much, is that when you're in a situation that's uncomfortable or scary or, or dark, you'll, you'll try and do something that's going to lighten it up a little bit, even if it's ineffective or a, a candle in a thunderstorm. It's just, it's just that attempt at it. So I always put it in there because I think that's just what these people would do. Yeah, I like that air of authenticity to it. You know, you mentioned that's a, a British trait, and uh, I'm putting words in your mouth, but maybe it's an acceptable British trait, but I do think it's a human trait, even if it would be 
frowned upon, you know, making a joke at a funeral or during, you know, a serious so. moment or anything like that. Um, and y- you're right, you know, in my own writing, if I'm trying to put together something that's bleak, I mean, a lot of times I'll read it and, uh, you know, the dialogue doesn't ring true or I don't know if this person would react like that, but injecting just a little bit of that you know that humor even if it's like nervous humor i'm cracking a joke because there's a fucking ghost you know 10 feet away from me um again i think it just makes it ring true because you or somebody you know would do the exact same thing even in the most unlikely of situations yes exactly you you really would it's the human thing to do Uh, particularly if there's more than one of you you, you're going to try and sort of help each other out there and and you know, th- th- there is a photograph which is is one of the most British things I've ever seen, which is it's a photograph from the Blitz in World War Two, and there's these two women sat on a massive pile of rubble, just like on the, the remainder of a wall on what was most probably their house, and they're both drinking a cup of tea on what used to be their house, and they're just laughing. And that is the most British thing I've ever seen, just that, like, in that, in the midst of that, they found something to make each other laugh whilst having a cup of tea. And that, that's, that's Britain to me there, that, that spirit of just, oh, we'll find someone to laugh about, you know, because that's that, that through hardship. And I think, yeah, anything to me where you're watching a horror film or, or any kind of film, really, and nobody makes a joke at any point, I just find that really unlikely. It's like... It, it's like um, M. Night Shyamalan, where he, he like doesn't seem to know how to write humans, you know, and he like <laughs> I, it's like an alien observing them from the outside, and it's like no, this isn't how people actually talk to each other, and you know, I like to try and make my characters seem like real people because the situation that they're in probably isn't a realistic one, if if you're not a believer in the supernatural, which I'm personally not, so I at least like to have the fundamentals of this of this reality to seem like a real place so these seem like real people because then that's going to make you buy into it more when the crazy stuff starts happening i'd like to talk about seance uh how about you tell us about so i don't spoil anything about seance yep um well seance was sort of my attempt at sort of like a classic agatha christie style story where you get like a locked room with people you know like a different group of people who are all unusual in their own way and they've got a different backstory but i thought instead of like a, a, a murder's happened it's a supernatural event so it's a bunch of, of sort of wealthy to do people in like turn of the century who've got together to have a seance because it's just something to do and it was quite popular at that time but then it goes badly wrong because what if the thing that never gets considered in these sort of seances and stuff is what if this is legit what if this isn't some you know old kook with strings and putting on a funny voice and stuff what if this is a real thing and she gives you specific instructions to follow to make it safe and you don't pay attention to them and what happens next and it's 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 very much about that but also the very human reactions and how each one of these people around this table would act in that kind of event and and oh it's almost like a hostage situation in a way and that they're stuck in this room and and but yeah that was that was really fun i really enjoyed writing that one kind of reminded me of the movie host where it's a seance and there's that one one person that is uh not on the same page i should say without spoiling either the movie or book (laughs) yeah and they're the reason why things are wrenched up a notch yes 
Yeah, well, I, I liked the idea of treating the supernatural almost like a science because everything, everything in the universe has rules to it. Even if it's rules we don't understand, everything has rules and boundaries and things that can and can't work. So I thought, surely, if a seance was a real thing, whereby you would use the psychic energies of a group of people in the room to contact people who've moved on, it, this would need to be like an experiment in that you would need to know who was in that room because you'd need to know what energies you're bringing in there. So if one of the people there was not who they said they were, it's like doing a chemistry experiment where you've been told to bring that chemical, but instead you've brought this other one. And as soon as you do that, you're not going to get the result you were expecting and you're not entirely sure what that result's going to be. So I thought treating it sort of vaguely as a scientific experiment was a slightly different approach. And I, th I think it worked all right. And that is why, and I'm sure casting brain might not work like this, but the sentiment would be the same. That is why this collection is just like an easy five out of five, man. It's just like, oh, thank you. Yeah. It's just, you, you talk about, things that we're familiar with but you do that spin and in this case with science you put a a scientific approach on it and the way you do it is just it it, it feels so real and the thing that is brought to light or rather darkness in this situation oh my god i'd shit myself <laughs> if, I that, if i was in that room casting yeah. my thoughts on that one I mean, I liked it. I could see that one being like a, something that I could like watch on TV or something. Like it seemed like it would be really good for the screen. Sure. Yeah. I think I, some of my stories, I, I think work and some don't in terms of picturing it as a screen adaptation. But I did, I did think when I was writing that you could do this, you could film this quite easily, couldn't you? Like in one room with. with yeah. I think with the one room, because there are some of your, I mean, honestly, I could see all of them, all the ones that I read in this collection being adapted, but I think some of them would require maybe a little bit bigger budget or like just <laughs> landscaping, you sure. know, like yeah. an ocean or something. Um, but like, yeah, that one is because it's, it's so, it's just located and contained and there's so much like tension and different things that are happening just in that one small area that I think it would be really like good with like the tight close-up shots and stuff too yeah absolutely because it's as much about the people as about what else is happening there yeah exactly yeah can you so this isn't about this story <laughs> the okay. one with the car how do you say that name of that story you don't because <laughs> it's it's meant to look like a license plate so oh you, my god what's the sorry, word that, that they wasn't. think the street's called though acheron acheron okay which is, okay, which is the name to the road of the dead in greek mythology Okay, that's I was familiar and I did not know what it was from. And I, I, I will admit I finished the book this morning. So I was like, reading it like flipping through and I, like, <laughs> I got to get this done by 8am. So like, usually like if I see something that I kind of like am a little bit familiar with, but don't know, I'll look it up. But I was like, I'm gonna talk to him in an hour. I'm just gonna ask him about this. <laughs> that's fine. It's fine. Um, I love that one, though. I love that story. a lot. Thank you. That one. Uh, a few people have read that and told me it. Uh, I'll try and give a synopsis of it without spoiling it. So basically, it's a guy who's in a car driving on a motorway or a highway as you guys would call it and it just seems to go on forever there's like he's in that kind of fog where you can't see more than about 50 feet in front of you and about the same behind he hasn't seen any other cars for ages and he's just driving on and on and on and it, it's how your mind would deal with that and what you start thinking about and then the different possibilities of of, of how to get out of this situation so a few people have told me that they pictured that as almost like a black and white Twilight Zone segment. Mm. And I, I quite liked that comparison. It's not something I thought about when I wrote it, but 
having people point that out, I can see that. Uh, yeah, I can, I can see, see that, that working. Because that's another one which would be very pretty simple to film. Because mostly it's in the car. There's yeah. only a couple of segments where it goes beyond that, but for the right. most part, it's just him in the car. Yeah, and I think like to get the the shots of like the the highway or what did you call it? motorway? Yeah, the that's mo- what we call it here. <laughs> <laughs> um, those shots, like I feel like that you could. I mean, there are specific like they'd have to doctor it up with some special effects and stuff, but they could film that like anywhere. Like it could just be any big street like sure yeah that, that, that story actually came from a sort of real life experience i was driving back from uh, i'd gone to drop my girlfriend off in london for a, a job she was doing there and i was driving back i i decided to come home that night rather than um rather than stay over now this is where britain's a little bit different than america because i talk about driving a long distance and i mean four hours which is oh. not, which is not the case, <laughs> you know. I, I I live in the north of England, which is all uh, countrysides and moors and that kind of thing. Whereas London is is the south, so it's quite some distance. Um, but that, so I was driving back, and it was about two o'clock in the morning, and it was dark and foggy, and the the route I took just wasn't a popular driving route, and I must have gone about an hour and a half without seeing another car. And when it's that late at night and you're subsisting on like caffeine drinks and it's silent and there's no other cars about and it's foggy and you, because it's a highway, there's there's no landmarks. It's not like driving to a city centre where, oh, there's that building and there's this, you know, cathedral or whatever. You're you just going on. Though, right? It's just what, sorry? You had lights though, right? There were lights on the highway? Like, yeah, not all of them. Some of them. <laughs> some of you do, oh, some you don't. Um, so you're just yeah. going on and on and on with no discernible landmarks and you, you start thinking to yourself like how long have i been doing this how long <laughs> have i been on this road have i actually fallen asleep while i'm driving or you know and, and you kind of lose that sense of time and everything so that that was kind of the 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 germ of this idea really that's that's what spawned it i love that i, I can see how that would lead to that without giving anything away because that sort of like isolated desolate feeling of like loneliness and the darkness like I mean I I so I drew I used to live in Florida and I moved up to Boston and I drove up and down the east coast sure. several times and it's like a 18 hour drive I think um there were some times where I was driving through like South Carolina and like you have to go this particular speed or else you'll get pulled over very easily nice. <laughs> um, and it's just being so constant and then seeing the trees just fly by with like very little light you're just like like what's happening like am I even seeing things right now like I need so you turn on the music really loud and so when he was like (laughs) I won't give anything away but when he turns on the radio and the thing I was like this is so realistic because I would do the same thing like you just need to break that silence somehow you need to introduce something so you're not alone something normal something grounding something that it feels like yeah that's that is actually something I do uh, like so the radio I do it with podcasts but when uh, when I'm having like an anxiety attack or something I will quite often do something like that because it it kind of reminds me that there's a world beyond my head, that there are still other things out there that are okay and which are happy and which I enjoy when I'm not feeling like this. And it kind of, it pulls you out of that spot, if you like, and kind of reminds you that, okay, the way you're feeling like now is not going to be forever. You know, do you remember the last time you listened to an episode of this podcast and you felt fine and now you listen to this one and that kind of reminds you that you'll be okay again. So I think in a situation like that, switching on the radio just seems like the perfectly normal thing to try and do to get your head out of that zone that it's got into so again it's, it's having people act in a normal way in a situation which is abnormal 
Cassie, did you say that you moved up to Boston? Yeah, I lived in, well, I lived in Quincy for like, uh, I don't know, six months or something. We've been friends for like two years. I never knew that. (laughs) I've lived all over the U.S. I've moved a lot. (laughs) Where, me and Brennan, well, I moved from Massachusetts, but we're from there. And I never knew that. That's interesting. Do you know where like Back Bay is, like downtown? Yeah. I worked at the Trader Joe's there. <laughs> it's basically like a small basement store. No, it's like yeah. so tiny. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm I'm 40 minutes from Quincy right now. Yeah, I worked at right where the tea station is in Quincy, and like right down the street from like the very first Dunkin' Donuts ever. Um, that's oh, I don't I, go there. I hate driving there. But it's not a great area to be fair. <laughs> I used to work at uh, Polar for Polar Beverages, so I every Sunday have my Boston route, and uh, yeah, I'd go through Quincy sometimes. Hmm. They're not super nice areas. Um, <laughs> we hijacked the conversation. Um, I want to go back to something you mentioned. Um, Wait, I, let, I really let's plug going. plug where the story's from. That that that's a good segue. And then <laughs> Brennan, what? Where that I've story been... that you just talked about, the one that we can't pronounce the name. Okay, okay, plug, yeah. plug the anthology that's in, man. Yeah, whistling past the graveyard. No, no, no. That's that's publishing another. Anthology before. Oh yeah, that was also published in the Black Room manuscripts by a horror company. Yeah, there's a collection of books by some really, really strong horror authors in those, and I was lucky enough to get a story in in one of those, and it was that one. Um, when I did Whistling Past the Graveyard, for the most part, I uh, wanted to do new stories, but there was a couple that had had a really good reaction in previous books that they'd been published in, so I, I took a couple out and and put them in this again. And that was one of them, yeah, because it was it it gone down really well with people. And I, really, sorry, what? I, I just wanted to because it it ties in with Lex. And sorry to cut both of you off. Um, I just wanted all three um, of us actually. You're in that mode today. Sorry, guys. I just <laughs> wanted to get to to draw a little attention to Sinister Horror Company. I don't hear them sure. talked about much. They've been around for since 2014, 2013. So. Just real quick, I was wondering if you could plug them. Anything nice you want to say about Justin, the guy that runs it, or Tracy Fahey? I know she runs it a little bit, too. Yeah, she helps out a lot. Uh, so Sinis Horror Company is a British uh, horror publishing company uh, run by Justin Park, who is one of the nicest people you'll ever speak to Absolutely. in your life. And he knows what's good. I know that sounds stupid, but like he he, he has a knack for like you, you go through the entire catalogue of what Sinis Horror has published, and none of it's crap you know it's like he has this real eye for finding what's a good book mm. even like his own work like if he's doing an anthology he, he even like auditions his own stories he won't just put it in there because he's really you know, written it he's he's got a very keen eye for quality and, and he's he's the effort he puts into everything that they produce is is phenomenal given it's it's such a like short-staffed operation um but also, he's he's so willing to give people a chance on things. You know, like people who haven't been published before or or someone's written something the likes of which he hasn't published before, but he thinks it's worth taking a punt on. And, and it, 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 it's that kind of thing is so important because you just don't find that with bigger publishers. They like to play it safe and they go for what's worked a million times before. And, you know, and, and Justin is like an absolute shining example of someone who's willing to take those chances if the work's good and and you know put stuff out there and and then do everything to promote it at his own cost and everything and and yeah i'm actually um the very first 
horror convention event that I've been to sort of behind the table rather than as a customer, I will be doing later this year and I'm doing it with Justin. I'm helping him out on the Sinister Horror selling table and I'll be signing some of your own books and stuff if, if they're there. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. They, uh, I saw you post something recently that Guy and Smith, they got three posthumous, it's posthumous, right? Am I saying that yeah. right? Yeah. They have three Guy and Smith posthumous books being published through them? I don't know if it's three, but yes, the, I know he, he settled some work with Sinister Horror, which, which will be coming, yeah. That's exciting. And one last thing, and then Brennan, again, my apologies um, for cutting you off, sir, but can you please plug one of my favorite books ever by you that came out last year. That's all the hints you get. <laughs> the old one in the sea. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, the old one in the sea is a children's weird fiction book, I suppose you'd call it, which is an illustrated retelling of the Call of Cthulhu story. It's sort of imagines a world in which H.P. Lovecraft, as a child, actually met uh, the creature Cthulhu when he was a little boy, and, and he met Cthulhu and sort of befriended him. And the story tells that story of that, but it ends in such a way that you can kind of see how that then leads into the story that you know. Because obviously, if you're a fan of Cthulhu as an adult, you'll be, you'll be reading these, this book and thinking, well, this isn't like the, the book version but then there is a kind of an out at the end which explains that but yeah it's it's, it's illustrated by uh liam hill who who's a comic book artist uh and he, he's a musician as well um and it's that's published by since our company it's in hardback as well it's the first book i've had in hardback which looks gorgeous and uh yeah that's it's, it's had a really lovely response that was one of those things which was a really sort of um bit of a gamble really both for me to write it and for justin to publish it we didn't know how that was going to be taken but the response to it's been really lovely is that sequel coming out man i'm, I'm sorry to pester you for like a year <laughs> but i want that sequel because he yeah he he talked about it in the first episode but can can you talk about what that is entailing yeah, so the sequel that I'm going to do is it's based on the lovecraft story at the mountains of madness um, which is where a group of Arctic explorers find this city hidden sort of beneath the ice in the mountains, which predates all of human history. It's it's kind of one of those which upends everything we think we understand about civilization and when it started and how it started and everything. And there's monsters in it, of course, there is. It's Lovecraft. But the the way I'm telling this story is it's told through the perspective of a penguin because there are penguins quite famously in that story. Um, and it's a penguin who finds a, a juvenile Shoggoth, which is the creatures in the At the Mountains of Madness story, and sort of befriends it and looks after it just at the point. That is the very beginning of the story. But then the human explorers arrive, who you see in the At the Mountains of Madness story, and everything that happens with them still happens. This is just a side part of it. So it's like witnessing events you've seen before, but from the point of view of somebody else and seeing how different these things look when you see it. And the penguins, I, I probably spent more time reading about penguins than any animal that I've ever <laughs> done because I, I didn't want to. I mean, they talk because they talk to each other, but I didn't want to anthropomorphize them. You know, they don't wear glasses. They don't live in little houses. They don't wear, you know, they, they do 
things that penguins do. That everything they do is what penguins actually do and how they do it. The only difference is that they speak, but they only speak to each other. So if you were a human coming along, you're not going to have a conversation with them. It's, it's, you know, it's purely so I can illustrate how they communicate with each other. Um, but my plan is to get that illustrated by Liam as well. So it's got the same sort of style as, as the other one. But uh, yeah, I, it just keeps getting shelved at the moment because of other projects that come up. And then the um, obviously the pandemic and everything's kind of thrown a spanner in that. So I will I will get to it. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah, I I just think that anyone should read uh, The Old One to See because it's like my son's not old enough where... He lo- he loves books, but he's not old enough where he's gonna like digest this. So when he's a little bit older, I'm gonna read it to him. And I think this is a great way to get them into Lovecraft. I feel like if you like horror literature, you should absolutely explore Lovecraft and Blackwood and all the older authors. And this is a great way to do that. It took Cthulhu in a whole new light. It made Lovecraft into <laughs> someone that's not a complete weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was very keen to point out when I wrote this that this is not biographical or autobiographical. <laughs> no, it's no. very much, it's a little boy called Howard Lovecraft. No part of it is in any way actually meant to be like him. You know, it's 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 quite clear about that. Yeah, and um, I, I just last thing on this subject is uh, I thought it was interesting in what you said about penguins. I, I wrote a short, un, it's unpublished, but I wrote a short story about a raven um and they're interesting i did a lot of research on them from you know how they how they uh, hunt and they're one of the few animals that actually make toys and play with them they've been seen sliding on uh, snow covered roofs they make like stick toys and play with like balls and stuff they're crazy smart um but enough about that uh does anyone have anything else on whistling past the graveyard that they would like to talk. About. You know what? I wanted to throw in real quick. Um, only kind of related to Acheron, but um, if 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 we can call that the title of the story. But sure. uh, the you know you mentioned that when you you know get in a bad or uncomfortable headspace, that one thing you might do is throw on a podcast because it, use it to kind of ground yourself and remember that I've you know I've listened to this before and everything turned out all right. And, you know, I think it's I I think that's really interesting and, you know, a a good thing to throw out because I do the same thing. You know, I have when I'm having a bad day, when I just can't like calm myself down, I have a song I can put on and it doesn't fix everything. But it it reminds me of other times that, you know, that I've gotten through. So, you know, I, I think that's a good strategy. But I also, you know, thank you for kind of sharing that. That's okay. I think it's it, because for me, the worst thing um, when I'm having an anxiety sort of day is that it's that feeling of perpetualness as if this is how I feel now and it's awful and it's always going to feel like this. And that feeling, whether it's depression, anxiety or whatever, that is what leads people to, to suicide is that feeling that it's always going to feel like this. When people take that ultimate tragic step, it's because they... They are just doing whatever they can to make that feeling stop. It's that's you quite often the, the the cause of that. So anything you can do that reminds yourself that this is not going to be forever, 
I might feel like this today. I might feel like that tomorrow. But there is a there is a light at the end of this tunnel. I'm not always going to feel like this. Anything you can do that reminds you of that is so important. And I, and I think everyone's got their own methods of that. But um, I only really started talking about mental health stuff for myself within the last couple of years. And and one of the uh, talking about it publicly, I mean, uh, and one of the reasons for that is because I read a bunch of stuff which I related to or where I thought like what you just said, oh, that's a really good suggestion. I'm going to try that. And I, and it kind of occurred to me that talking about it publicly is not necessarily for you. It's, it's like if other people hear it and think, I struggle with that, and I might try that thing he's just suggested. That's helpful. But also just that knowledge that it's not just you, that there's other people struggle with this exact same stuff. That is so liberating to know that, that you're not just some freak who can't cope with life the way other people can, that this is an actual condition. Other people have this. People you look up to and respect, people who are older than you have this, and there's nothing wrong with you in that sense. I think that is so important to know. So if me talking about this stuff publicly helps at least one other person hear it and kind of appreciate that it's not just them, then it's, it's, it's worth the sort of mild embarrassment that i have about revealing that much of myself you know absolutely no i I completely agree with that um and like i said it's just it's important it's you're you're certainly not the only one and you know i'm just echoing what you said at this point but you know if, if you can make yourself a little bit vulnerable and share something that's a way that you felt or something that's helped you, even if it was just temporary and you knew it was temporary and you thought that, you know, sharing that could boost somebody else's day in any way, shape or form. That's it's a, it's a good feeling, I suppose. Yes, I agree. It's definitely worth doing. Yeah. I think too, a lot of it is if also, hi, I'm back. <laughs> I think, <laughs> um, sorry, but a, a lot of it too is, so like there are times where I do share stuff just like selfishly, like you guys have seen my long rants where I'm just like, I'm having a very bad day. Everything's falling apart. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, and it does feel selfish in the moment. Cause it's just like, like you're saying, like, I'm just stuck here sitting this, thinking this, all this stuff to myself by myself. And then I'm like, I need to tell somebody else. Like I need to not be the only person with this right now. And yes. So I, I talk, like I'll talk to my boyfriend or like I'll, if he's at work or if he's just like, sometimes, you know, he struggles too. So if he's having like a bad day, I don't want to like dump all my shit on him. And, you know, so like, and there's a balance because sometimes you can dump, you know, a fair amount of stuff on somebody, but, um, I usually dump to Twitter and then I've been so surprised because every single time I share something like personal or, um, just about like my mental health stuff, about autistic stuff, just about any of it. Um, there are people who reply or message me or text me and they're like, like, I did not know you were struggling with this. Like, thank you for sharing this. This puts words to exactly what I've been feeling. Yeah. And knowing that, like knowing like, cause I know how relieved I was when I figured out like why this stuff was happening, why I felt this way, why, like when stuff started to click and it's, it's still a struggle. Like it's, I have bad days where I'm just like, this fucking sucks, you know, like I don't want to feel this way. Um, but knowing that even on those really, really bad days, I'm not by myself and that there are other people who I can help even when I'm feeling at my like absolute worst, I can still do some good. Like that's, yes. I think, a really powerful feeling. And that's, I think, how you're saying there are a lot of people who who turn to more permanent things because they they can't get out of that. I think that's something that people should talk about more so that people in that situation knows. Like 
it's so easy to feel I'm in this dark place. I'm alone. Nobody wants to hear about this. Nobody wants to hear how I'm suffering because they're suffering too. But it's there are people out there who are suffering silently just like you. And by hearing it, they can start to put words to it and start to accept it and understand yeah. it. And I've built like a small community. Like Lex, I've talked to you before, like on the side, yeah. like privately, like just about things. And it's good to have this community of people who, even if it's not like a huge group or it's just like five individuals that you know that you share things with, it's, it's so, it's such a relief in those really alone times that you feel like if you're alone and you're just like, I need to hear a podcast. It's like, oh, I need to hear a podcast. And also I know I've got three other friends who are suffering from the same shit. So maybe I'll send one of them a DM real fast. Like, yeah, I think that's really, really powerful. I do that yeah. too. Um, so, sorry, Lex. No, I just okay. wanted to, before we venture to somewhere else, I just wanted to throw in my two cents with this. Um, <clears throat> tweets that I make, they're purposely to let myself know that it's okay and to get it out of my head. And also in hopes that you could help someone else out. Yeah. Uh, because I've expressed like, you know, insecurities and there's other people that are like, oh, me too. Or just last night I wrote this. Writing is a place you can tell those you miss just how much you love them. It's a portal that allows you to continue conversations with departed loved ones. And life can be a little bit better if not for just that one writing session. And and um, I, I told someone, Brennan's the only one that has read this character, but there's this one guy who's like he's not a gangster but he kind of is in real life and uh like an old he's an older gentleman um and he's just got a big heart that really pushed my um confidence up in life and helped me with writing uh before anyone here knew who i was back in like the early 2012 ish era um and I miss him. I wrote about him in a book that Brandon and I wrote. I wrote about him in other stuff. Uh, uh, we don't talk anymore. I don't know why, but I have no way of reaching him that I'm aware of. So it's nice that I can at least have that extension. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's all. That's all I got to add. I just so I have one more tiny thing too. So going back to listening to things for comfort. <laughs> um, my go-to is the office and like anytime I'm having an extremely bad, like rough time or like, do, do, do you, do you mean the American office? Can the I American office. That in there yes. oh, I, do, I, do. With, I do mean, sorry. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair <laughs> clarification to make. So I do mean the American office. And I always put the same episode on when I am like at my peak bad mental health time. And it's the, um, the one where in the very beginning Dwight sets the fire because he's trying to teach them about safety. And, <laughs> Every, and it's so funny because like Rich has commented because I will fall asleep if I have like bad three weeks in a row every single night for those three weeks I will fall asleep to that episode and Rich has been like it's so funny that you're struggling and you fall asleep to the sound of people crying and screaming from fear because <laughs> of the fire and I'm like but it's like comforting screaming I know their screams yeah. like I've heard these screams when I'm happier so <laughs> I know what I'll I, I do it with um, my comfort show that I always go back to is Frasier that's, that's uh, my one that that's a very calming good one, too. Yeah, it fits, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of Frasier, there's something funny that you wrote there, Lex, and I'm quoting your Facebook tweet. It says, vampire hunter character Abraham Van Kelsey Graham, Liam, <laughs> <laughs> drawn by Liam, uh, who we spoke of earlier. He's basically Frasier with a crossbow. Yeah. Is that is that real, or is that just yes. like a... 
Is that a British yes. joke? <laughs> no, no. Uh, I have the comic strip I mentioned right at the start. Uh, I've created a comic book strip with Liam uh, called The Anticlimactic Adventures of Detective Vampire. And it's about this vampire detective who, with his, he's got a sidekick who's like his thrall, who's like a, a walking skeleton, who's a butler called Bonesworth, and they solve supernatural crimes together. Except that um, Detective Vampire is massively incompetent. He has no detective skills. He has no, it's kind of like a commentary on social class, if you like, in that because he's wealthy, people just let him do it regardless of whether or not he's got any skills in it so there's a bit of a subtle social commentary there as well you know if, you, if you're poor and you want to walk, get into a career you've got to be really good at it but if you've got money then you can be crap and people let you do it um that is so true yeah um but he, he's just utterly inept but one of the characters is a vampire hunter whose name is abraham van kelsey grammar which is <laughs> So many of the characters in this are just pun-based. Like, we've got uh, a swamp monster called... He's called the Creature Who's a ba- Black Lagoon, and he's a giant black bean with a face. And just, Oh, my God, I thought I misheard you for a second, and I was no, like, no. did you say? No, no. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is, like, right up Liam's sense of humor, too. And then there's, there's a creature called the Werewolf, but it's Were spelt W-H-E-R-E, and he's always lost, because he's got... <laughs> and it's just... It's just all things like this. It's just all things like this. And the, the, his arch enemy, who's a running a running character in it, is a giant eyeball called Professor Moriarty, and he's like a giant eyeball with arms and legs and stuff. And it, but the, yeah, the, the series kind of we just started it as a bit of a joke, really, just me and Liam, me writing it and him drawing it, and we just put it on his website. But people really liked it. And uh, what happened is an actual uh, indie comics distributor got in touch with Liam and asked if he could put together enough material to make a printed issue of it, which could then be included in like these boxes of indie comics merchandise that get sent out to people via a subscription service. So I've then wrote a bunch more scripts, and Liam's currently illustrating them, and we've also done things to put it into like a full comic book. We've done things like um, character bios, uh, and I've also done some like joke advert pages. Like, you know, if you buy comic books from like the 50s and 60s and stuff, and you get adverts for you know strange gadgets and and fashion and you get really weird things like smoking adverts aimed at kids and things like you know like in your 50s comic books and something that i always find really bizarre as a british person is when you pick up a comic from like the 70s and there's an advert for a gun that's blatantly aimed at kids and that's just so bizarre to me but i guess that's an american thing but all that kind of stuff we've done like joke versions of them as well so it's it's actually broken up like a real comic book uh, and yeah, Liam's just sort of doing the the artwork for all of that at the moment, which is, you know, I, I make no secret of the fact that he has the lion's share of the work with this. You know, I can I can bang out a script for a one page comic strip in about half a day, whereas he's got to do all the, the hard work with the illustration. So his bit is is much harder than mine. But yeah, when that's done, that's going to be going to to print, and I'll uh, I'll be sharing everywhere where it's available. Can't wait. I'm yep. so down for those pun-based characters. <laughs> so, That's most of the jokes. He's some sort of terrible pun. I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> if that's the story, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I, I really wanted to cover something that seems really important. And speaking of possibly helping others, because we're sure. running out on time, and I don't want to miss this. Um, 
Now, just so I don't come off like a dick, we've mean Lex gave me the green light to bring this up before we recorded. Um, I'd like, in your words, to however you want to take this, talk about how you've been super public about. Uh, if I'm phrasing this incorrectly, correct me, please. It having autism and being a creator. Sure. Okay, so I um figured out towards the end of last year so i got my diagnosis that i am actually autistic which was a bit of a shock um but then it wasn't you know you get that immediate thing where you get that news and you think what but then you actually look back over like the entirety of your life and you start thinking oh that explains that and that explains this and that explains why i can't do this thing that everybody seems capable of doing and all these things and i know these are experiences that cassie shares with me we spoke about this personally as well as as on twitter just so many things where you think oh that's why i can't do that thing and and why this is a struggle for me and everybody the way i've always felt my entire life is as if there was a day at school where everyone was taught stuff and i miss that day that's how I've always felt my entire life. This is how you make friends. This is how you walk up to a group of people and start a conversation. And this is all these like secret tricks to life. You know, it's like there was a day of that and I missed it. And that's that's how I felt like the entirety of my life as a child, as an adolescent and as an adult. And having this, this sort of diagnosis explains all of that for me. And once I sort of came to terms with that and accepted it, it just filled in so many blanks in such a way that it, it i actually felt good about it it was it was it was like a positive thing for me now so i'm not just inept at making friends i'm autistic i'm not crap at having conversations with people i'm not just weird because i can't make eye contact i'm autistic it's, it's an actual thing it's, it's like i am missing something that normal people for want of a better word possess and for me to struggle that with things as a result of that is just as normal as somebody who's missing a leg struggles with physical things that involve walking. And suddenly I stopped beating myself up about things and I stopped blaming myself for everything because I had this other thing of that's sort of tied into the anxiety, which is another thing I suffer with. But I, I always sort of see myself as a bad guy in a situation. So if there's been an argument, it's got to be my fault. If something's gone wrong, if someone's fallen out with me, it's got to be my fault. It never occurs to me that actually maybe the other person is the dick, you know, but through through this, through this this diagnosis and accepting that about myself and sort of re-examining a lot of situations I've been in, you kind of see that actually it's not necessarily me. Maybe somebody should have had a bit more patience. Maybe they should have, you know, recognised things in me and understood that I struggle with this stuff and you know, it, 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 that is liberating to, 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 to see all that. So I have been talking about it publicly again because of like what I spoke about earlier. There are other people who will be struggling with the same sorts of things and who feel the same things about themselves and, and perhaps haven't considered that as an option. And, and it just seemed like for that reason, but also much more selfishly, if you would ever talk to me and think Lex is a bit weird or why can't he make eye contact with me? Or, you know, why does his voice sound a bit monotone some days or whatever? Because it, it, it explains that for people as well. You've got a reason now. You know that I wasn't being rude. I wasn't being awkward. I, there's, there, you understand this now. Because my, I don't know if this is the same for you, Cassie, but my autism, it kind of goes up and down depending how tired I am. 
so like I will have days where I'm fully mentally rested and everything and if you met me on that day you would be forgiven for not even noticing that I was autistic but then after so long particularly when I've been in very social situations a lot and I do a lot of masking which is kind of unconsciously hiding your autism I get burnt out and when you meet me on those days you would immediately know that I was autistic because that is when I seem very robotic where I seem very monotone, where I'm lacking all the, the charm and the humour and, and all these things that you kind of expect from a person. All of that's gone and I'm almost like on autopilot. And before I had this explanation, I would, I would hate for people to have met me on one of those days and sort of define me entirely as if, oh, he must be rude or something. Whereas now having this explanation, which also covers why it varies on different days, that explains all of that. So one of the much more selfish reasons for talking about it publicly for me is because it explains that. So if anyone has met me when I've been on a really tired day mentally and I seemed a bit robotic or whatever, and that di- that experience of me differed to what somebody else had said about me, they now know not to take that personally. They now know I wasn't being rude with them or standoffish or anything. It's just that perhaps I was mentally burnt out at that point. Lex, I'd like to ask you, and I, I want to rope Cassie into this too, if she's okay with it. But, you know, when Pat introduced the topic, he he said, you know, person with autism, person first language, which is essentially kind of how the academic community kind of, you know, touts it as the most respectful way. But through speaking with a lot of autistic adults, they they do describe themselves as autistic as you did. I wonder yeah. how you kind of feel about that identity as you know saying i'm a person and i have autism autism versus saying i'm an autistic person do you want to go out on first cassie um yeah so for me i can't speak for everybody obviously there are people who will have different opinions of it and they'll feel differently i've met people who who do have issues with it i've also met people who are like i, I don't care either way um for me personally when i'm talking i just uh, being autistic is such an ingrained part of who I am and it has always been that I I don't feel like it's um, it's not like Cassie with rainbow hair. It's you know, like it's not something that I've adopted or something that's something that I can take off or something that I can just not be at some point in my life. Like yeah, it's absolutely. I'm always going to be autistic. Um, so saying like a person with this thing makes it think it's like something I have where it's that's not how it feels for me personally. It just feels like something that I yeah. am. I think. Yeah, that's that's what I lean towards as well. I mean, I do kind of take what Brennan said about it doesn't offend me. I'm not right. I'm not that sort of person who goes looking for offense like that. It's it's why I often find myself sitting on the sidelines in Twitter when people have got offended about this or that, and I just think, really, this is this is worth getting upset about, is it? But I mean, personally, I prefer the term "I am autistic" rather than "with autism" because that sounds almost like it's a disease or almost like it's a thing that I've got, which might I might not always have had. Or Whereas being autistic, that's like, just as Cassie said, that is, it, it, it frames so much of who I am and who I've always been and always will be. There is no fix for this and no, no should there be. It is just who I am as a person. It's a part of me. So I think just describing myself as autistic is much preferred for me but if someone else uses the phrase Lex has autism, I'm not offended by that. It, ultimately, it means the same thing. But I, given the choice, I would prefer to say Lex is autistic, but I'm not bothered if someone says it the other way. 
Same. Yeah. That's a great question. That's all I wanted to say. Great question. I didn't know that because I was taught the respectful way was this, but clearly, and this, I bring this up because I think this is another learning lesson uh, for myself and for whoever else is interested in learning this. Um, there's no right answer. You know, there's not sure. one right answer, rather. So, Brent, yeah, no, I mean, certainly we could have had both of both of you guys say, I do prefer to, you know, be thought of as a person first and, you know, my, you know, sure. my autism second. Um, so you're right. There's no wrong answer. Like I said, um, I've through my master's degree, I, I focused on um, working on teaching music to autistic people. Uh, that was kind of my main focus. And the more autistic uh, adults that I read their essays, their blogs, their whatever they were writing or talked to, that seemed to be the more prevalent um, preference. Um, sure. And Cassie, I, I think that your rainbow hair analogy, I think that's perfect. You yeah. know, yeah. It, it, it almost sounds awkward to say, oh, this is Cassie, a person with rainbow colored hair, um, <laughs> you know, as opposed to a walking, talking, breathing rainbow. Um, <laughs> that so, is fair. Yeah. You know, Lex, the, re- the, the biggest reason, and of course, Patrick knows this, and I'm I, I, I'm fairly positive Cassie knows this as well. Both my boys are autistic and. We really had no compunctions about telling them that they were autistic from pretty much the first, the beginning of their diagnosis, even maybe before they had a full grasp of what that means. And now at eight and 10, they're both homeschooled. And I do feel like they have an understanding, at least a basic understanding uh, that it makes some things easier that, you know, my fifth grader can do math at a high school level, um, but that reading doesn't come as easy and that's okay. It's because of the way his brain works and he's anxious as hell he is. But if we can alleviate a little bit of that by, you know, giving him the ability to understand why his brain works that way and that it's okay. And that there are a lot of people out there that uh, have the exact same thing. um, Then, I feel like you're almost I'm getting up on a soapbox here, but I I feel like you're almost getting doing a disservice to your children. And I've worked with uh, by not telling them I've worked with sure. students who do get up to that middle school or high school level. And for whatever reason, their parents, you know, they're diagnosed, their parents have opted not to share it with them. Maybe they don't want the kid to view themselves as different, but they're unhappy and they can't figure out why. Yeah. Um, yeah. Finding the answer, I think, for me, I, I I, mean, I grew up in the like late 80s and 90s and it wasn't understood then. So like to have been diagnosed or recognized as autistic then you would have had to have been like really severely autistic, you know, like incapable of looking after yourself. So sort because of. obviously it is a spectrum. So there's people at various ends of it. But just somebody like me with my just essentially seem all right but then there's some some specific things that i really struggle with and i've spoken about a lot of those online like patrick said i don't think that would have ever been recognized for me so the time that i was alive in uh, that i was growing up in whereas your children growing up now it's so wonderful for them that they have parents but also a wider society who can recognize this and put a label on it and explain this for them because I spent so long as a child, as I'm, as I'm sure Cassie did, feeling 
that there was something weird about me compared to other children that why can't I fit in with them why don't I enjoy the things they enjoy why can't you know all these things that just come naturally to them and they don't to me and having an explanation for that even if you're grasped on it as a child is not as adept as it will be an adult but having some sort of explanation that tells you there's nothing wrong with you there is just something about your brain that works a little bit differently and that's why these things are difficult that would have been wonderful to have had that as a child it would have taken so much sort of self dislike of yourself and beating yourself up mentally and and thinking you're lesser than the others it would have removed all of that and i feel i would probably have grown up as a much more confident adult to be honest if i'd had that so I think you're giving them that. And I actually think that's a really wonderful thing to do. Yeah. I, uh, well, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Cassie. Go no. ahead, please. Okay. I was just going to say, I, I definitely agree with that. Because I, so, as, I mean, as I've said, you guys have probably read it. When I was a teenager, I was diagnosed with Asperger's. And my mom, um, she didn't like it or agree with it. And I think that there was, it was because, as Lex is saying, it, back then, like when, you know, like 30 years ago, um, well, obviously not 30 because I'm, I'm 32 now, <laughs> Um, like 20 years ago or whatever, like it was less widely identified and it was in as on the spectrum like there. And so I hate to use this term because I don't personally like this term high functioning because I there are mm. times where I'm definitely anything but that. And so I don't like to to use that. Um, but back then that was a term that was used a lot. And so people who sure. were not high functioning were more frequently or readily diagnosed, I feel, than people who yes. could pass it off. Um, Absolutely. It's about and, passing, if you like. Isn't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah. like you were saying, with the the shame and the bad feelings, there's so much of my childhood because my mom didn't listen to the doctor because she took me to a different doctor and was like, "Start over. What does she have? Oh, ADHD. That's great." And I do. I I have ADHD. I have borderline personality disorder. But my being autistic, like that, is such. If somebody had told me that when I was 16 and they had sat down and said, this is why, like, this is why all of these things from your childhood, this is why you struggle so much now. This is why your relationships with people are so difficult. Even people you genuinely like love and like, like you cannot connect to them sometimes. And if if somebody had explained it to me and walked me through it and if I had gotten counseling and something so that I could understand myself better, like what you're giving to your kids, Brennan, like that would have changed so much for me. Like, and they're. There are so many times that I think back because um, recently I've been experiencing autistic burnout, like I've talked about, and it's the first time that I've ever f- known that term and known what that was to put a name to what I've been feeling for the last couple of months. This is not the first time this has happened in my life, though, and that yes. there have been so many times that I can pinpoint where, like, for months, and it's usually triggered, like it, like you said, being overwhelmed and tired, or like um, when my sister died, I had a I shut down and had a really bad time. Um, and it's just, there have been so many times that I can I can look back on now that I know these things and have this knowledge. And I could say, like, if I knew this then, I could have sat there and been like, okay, I know why this is happening. I'm not yeah. fucked up. Like, I'm not broken. I'm not stupid or wrong or, like, it's not my fault that I can't do this. I felt like a terrible girlfriend, a terrible friend, a terrible, like, daughter, sister, like, everything yeah. so much because they just don't know how to do things. I can't function. Like, other people easily function and just... I just want to say thank you for your kids because it's, yeah, it's really, really important that. what you're doing for them. Yeah. You, you know, and I feel like I came off as hostile towards parents who don't before. <laughs> <laughs> and I, most of the reason is because I certainly know um, parents who have, I believe, selfishly decided 
for their kids that they don't have the right to know that. But I think there are more parents who just don't know what the right thing to do is, who mm -hmm. feel like maybe they're burning, uh, burdening their kids with that uh, knowledge. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I can sit here and say it, but it means like less than a quarter as much as Lex, you and Cassie saying that sharing that information with your kids and allowing them the outlet to talk about it is probably the most helpful thing that you can give them because otherwise they're going, you know, this is not something you can cure despite what Autism Speaks thinks. Mm -hmm. This is not something that you can just turn off at uh, on a whim. And this is just who you are. This is the way your brain works. And having a kid go through life with their brain working differently and with no answer when one is readily available it's it's cruel yeah i no i agree i fully agree with you i think you're doing them a massive uh beneficial thing there by by sharing that that, that with them and they'll, they'll always go through life having that answer so they'll never get to that point of you know why am i like this what's wrong with me because because you know it's it's like if your kid's diabetic and they can't have sugar, so like they know why they can't why they've been denied that chocolate bar. It's because they can't have it because they've got a condition. It, it's that answer is so much better than just thinking why can't I have chocolate when all the other kids have chocolate. You know, it's yeah. I I, I always lean on the side of facts and information. I always think that's that's always the best thing to have. So I mean I I want to thank you guys we, Lex we've we've taken up a lot of your time and uh, we we want to talk to you for a few more minutes but I do want to thank both of you guys for talking so candidly about your experiences. Oh, you're very welcome and thank you for asking about it in such a respectful way. Did and Cassie, you too, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> Sorry if I, I I get toward the end too. I started getting emotional, and so I'm like I've been crying so easily recently, and I don't know why. It's so like my art, my eyes are like watery, and I'm like, no, please, Cassie, calm yeah. yourself. <laughs> you, you know what though? I'm sitting here right with you though because I I you know I I'm not autistic, but I see what my you know even with that knowledge, I see my kids you know realizing they're different, and I think about their future and you know the way that people who are not informed are going to treat them and it you know that keeps me up at night so. um so yeah yeah you guys speaking so candidly about it that means a lot to me and i thank you oh you're very welcome thank you so lex i would like to take us to uh what are you currently reading oh what am i reading well i uh something that i've got at the moment i've got a pile of books on my bedside table which is all like pulp paperback 1970s ghost story collections which my girlfriend got me for christmas and it's the kind of things that you would have seen in like news agents on those like rotating racks you know like in the 80s and 90s if you remember them uh, where you'd go in and there'd be like books on it for maybe uh, a, probably a couple of dollars in, in american currency and and there'd be stories that you'd probably never find any anywhere else and and just in these really old cheap sort of pulp paper paperbacks um, but some of them are really good and she got me a massive collection of them for christmas and the, the cover artwork's brilliant it's got that proper 70s and 80s style um color palette to it uh, and i've just been reading through loads of those and they're just they're really good i mean the, the quality varies from individual story but just the the levels of creativity and just that knowledge that you're reading work by someone who might never have had anything else published except what's in this specific book and it just feels really special to sort of be to be reading those 
and yeah, they really they've got a really great smell to them, and they just look like books that I remember seeing a lot when I was a kid. So it's it's really great to have a collection of them now. That's awesome. What's Cassie reading? So I have been reading mostly books for podcasts lately. Um, <laughs> What's that I, like? <laughs> I, 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 right? Yeah, I can't. Um, I've I've Sorry. struggled a lot to. Fo- no, no, it's good. Like I, your book was five stars for me. I haven't updated Goodreads yet, but it will be. Um, and then. I'm reading Christopher Pike's Chain Letter, which I think came out in like the 80s or something. And it's probably going to be a little problematic, but we'll see. And we'll discuss that at 12. Um, and then I think so a non-podcast book that I'm reading right now is uh, Mike Thorne's Shelter for the Damned. That came out mm. in February. I think it's a novella. I don't have the physical, so I don't know uh, like how thick it looks. But on my Kindle, it says that it's short enough from what I in my experience is a novella. Um it's really good so far. Uh, it's, you know, creepy, spooky. I don't know what's about to happen, but I feel like there's, I'm at that part of the story where like shit's about to go down. So we'll see, fingers crossed that I can actually get back to a book that does not relate to my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> How about you plug your other podcast? Oh, um, my other podcast is the Pike cast, which is a Christopher Pike themed uh, book club podcast where we revisit um, each episode is a different Christopher Pike book from like the late eighties and the nineties. And, uh, we go over just the whole plot, all the characters. Um, we do mention the stuff that's problematic because again, these were made in the late eighties, early nineties, oh, written by yeah. a, a white guy. So there are sometimes things in it that wouldn't be made into books today, probably. Um, but overall, like they, he's been one of my favorite authors since I was a kid. So I just get to talk shit with people, not even talking shit. Like I like it. Like I like the book. So I just mean like shoot the shit, I guess is the sure. better way of saying that um, with people, like with my friends about books I like and an author I like. So it's pretty fun. I like it. Y'all should go listen to it. Yay. It's a fun, <laughs> yeah, it's a fun show. Uh, Becca, oh, yeah. Becca We've had a, a guest. Cooper S. Beckett. A couple of, a couple of guest appearances. Speaking of which, <clears throat> we've had a certain guest. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I made a clown of the show. Sorry. No, no, your episode too. is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just remembering stuff. Hey, there's a lot of inappropriate talk at some point. So, Brendan, what are you uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, well, my my internet connection continues to be dicey, so if I come in fuzzy, I apologize. But uh, I am reading Ghost Story by Peter Straub. Speaking of. Uh, Speaking of preparing for future guests um, and only reading stuff for future guests on podcasts. But, (laughs) you know, this is my second time trying to read it and it's hitting this time. Thank goodness. You know, I made it about 152 pages, 200 pages in last time. And I just I I couldn't see what the what all the, you know, buzz was about. But I'm really enjoying it and I'm I'm kind of flying through it, which I'm surprised about. But uh I'm digging it and I'm looking forward to reading a few more of his books before we have him on. Imagine saying that to him like, hey, so didn't work with me. <laughs> I think well, so like, you tried books in different points in your life, too. Sometimes you're just not in the headspace and you read something oh, yeah. and you're just like, nah, this is not for me. And then you read it later. And you're like, oh, this is the best book I've ever read. Like, what what was I thinking? Like, yeah, so that's not that's it's not, not even an insult, I don't think. But probably don't bring it up on the episode, maybe. <laughs> I don't want to pull a McDonough. All right, so I am reading a few things. <laughs> One of them is for an episode we're recording next week, speaking of podcast books, which is called uh, Golf by Shelley Campbell. It is coming out through Silver Shamrock Publishing. Uh, 
And the other one is an older one. It was Ronald Kelly's first book with Zebra Pub- when Zebra had a horror book line. Um, it's called Hindsight. And there's two pleasure books I'm reading, both Cena Palio. I only have one with me right now. The other one's upstairs. Into the Forest and All the Way Through, which is the one that Cassie just commented on. It's a book of poetry, true crime poetry, that covers uh, real cases throughout the states. It covers uh, a few decades of missing women. And it's it's interesting. My wife today was telling me how she has this new eye watch for her birthday and um, how... If she if it has a physical impact that's powerful enough, uh, it calls the proper authorities. And I I have this book right in front of me, and I'm like, imagine if these some are girls, some are elderly. Imagine if they had something tracking them yeah. that could at least tell their loved ones where they were, whether they be alive or not. I mean, that's that's some situations that loved ones don't even know where what happened to them if they're still alive they don't even have a bone or a piece of hair to know that they're maybe alive or at least if they're dead they don't know where they are um so that pairs well with and it's strange to say that because it's it's uh it's true crime so it's someone's loved one but that that pairs well with her fictional book children of chicago which is about um a police officer a police detective now and I love it. I love that we're in this community where we can, just to be frank, read books that aren't just about um, straight white white dudes. Because uh, Cena is a Chicago native. She talks about lots of different races, and Puerto Ricans is one of them. And she's a Puerto Rican author, and it's it's a fresh perspective for me, and I love it. It's it's very. What's the best way to describe it? I'd describe her as someone that's similar to Thomas Harris uh, as a writer. Uh, it, it's gritty, but it's, the pace is phenomenal. So, okay, enough about that. Um, I just want to remind everybody that we have merchandise now. If you are inclined to so check it out, go to deadheadspace.com. You can click on the store tab. You can buy uh, my ugly mug on a coffee mug or a mask. Where my face on yours. And uh, let's lead to final thoughts. Start with a guest, Lex. Final thoughts, sir. <laughs> Put me on the spot there. <laughs> I know. I don't even know what final, like, what is this in Jerry Springer About level? What, like, what right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's a new thing I'm doing now. I just, I, I just don't want to end the show. Mike, here's why. I never, I thought, well, what if I stopped the guest from like saying something they wanted to throw out there? So I thought, why not do a final thought segment? It's super quick, or you could say pass. So yeah, I kind of just ran through a bunch of stuff and put likes on the spot. So sorry about that, buddy. <laughs> I feel like you could have just been like, "Is there anything else you wanted to mention before?" <laughs> I'm taking mental notes. That's a better approach than mine. Thank you, Cassie. <laughs> we appreciate you, Pat. <laughs> I'm well, glad I someone does. For me personally, I think we've we've covered everything, and if if the, any of the books that we spoke about. Uh, of mine sound interesting then please do do buy them they're all available in kindle and and paperback uh, and all of my work is with with smaller publishers so when you choose to buy something like that you are helping out people directly 
in a in a much more sort of noticeable way than if you're like buying something by a publisher who's you know multi-billion dollar industry so i would always sort of try and steer people towards sort of like smaller publishers for that reason anyway it's just just like i would try and try and steer people towards local shops and businesses rather than the massive conglomerates so yeah if, if you uh if, if you are interested in any of that work either of mine or anything else that those publishers have put out then please please go and pick something up nice uh cassie do you have any last things you want to say i didn't say it right. <laughs> <laughs> um no i i have a, a plant journal i have a new book coming to my etsy soon and that's just like a plant journal for if you have house plants and stuff and it's like a little tracker and coloring book so that'll be coming soon if you want to follow me on social media you can stay updated on new stuff to my shop all right and uh oh Brian Brian Brian. Years, he just came back his poor internet. He's like, morning recording doesn't work for me. <laughs> Brennan, can you hear me? Brennan. Give it a minute. It does say there's four people in the call up at the top. But yeah, it, it I said can't he joined. Him. But I think it takes a second for like the video to connect or maybe something. Maybe he oh. can hear us. Yeah, this is what happened last time. Can you guys hear the ice cream truck behind my house? No. Yeah. Oh, I actually I did hear it for I a little bit. I can hear the music. Yeah. It's so creepy. I don't know about what you guys have there, but we our ice cream trucks quite famously have like um, have like artwork on of say like cartoon characters, but they're not allowed to be exact because they get sued by people like Disney. Um, you'd think places like Disney would have better things to do than suing tiny little corporations, but that's what they do. Um, so all the characters are slightly off model, which gives them this really creepy look to them. <laughs> you know that slightly like that uncanny valley thing where something's just slightly wrong about it, and and it's like you're looking at Mickey Mouse and there's just it's just not quite right and it's disturbing. So there's, there's I like seeing them for that reason. That's I love hilarious. those. They sell like in uh, tourist shops and stuff in Florida. A lot of them because it's like. They have Disney brand merch, but it's cheaper if they make their own. So a lot sure. of the souvenir shops will make, and you'll see like um like a blue Mickey Mouse or like just <laughs> stuff like that. That's not right, but it they make it work because it's also a blue hoodie, and they're like, well, I'm not copyright. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my final thoughts are: I appreciate your guys' time. Thank you for sharing what you shared today, and for everyone that wants to stick around for next episode, that will be next Monday with. The uh, screenwriter, director, James Henry Hall, Brett K. Hall, and the actor, Sky Alobar, well known for The Greasy Strangler, a hell of a movie. <laughs> that's, that's all we got for today. Thank you. You got many choices with podcasts. We appreciate you listening to ours. Deadhead space.